0: an animal.
1: Good morning, this is Talking Animals on WMNF I'm Duncan Strauss And my guest today is Diana Goodrich Co-director of the Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest Located in Cleveland, Washington About 80 miles from Seattle Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest Houses 15 chimps Broadly speaking, these chimps reflect various types of histories, including several who were born at the Laboratory for Experimental Medicine and Surgery in Primates, or LEMSIP, which closed in 1996, at which point they moved to Wildlife Way Station, a 168-acre Southern California Sanctuary for Wild and Exotic Animals, which itself closed in 2019. A group of chimps, the so-called Lucky Six, relocated to the chimpanzee sanctuary northwest. Other chimp residents have more varied backstories, albeit with some overlapping plot lines, particularly periods living in research settings as well as being used for breeding, including born in captivity, born in the wild, stints with a circus performer, and so on. Goodrich has worked at Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest since 2008, just before the initial group of chimps arrived for purview at the sanctuary centers around fundraising and communications. Additionally, Goodrich also serves as Public Affairs Committee Chairperson. ...with the North American Primate Sanctuary Alliance, or NAPSA. We'll learn more about the chimpanzee sanctuary in Northwest and about various aspects about captive chimps... ...when I speak with Diana Goodrich in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Sheena Drost, the office manager and board secretary... ...at Critter Creek Farm Sanctuary, which across two facilities in and around Gainesville adds up to the country's largest cow sanctuary... We spotlighted Critter Creek in a 2021 full-length interview with founder Aaron Amaran. Today, we'll be speaking with Sheena Drost about an awful episode of the sanctuary experienced—an extended con perpetrated on them that was horrific and represents a significant setback for the uh, refuge. I wanted to present this story on the show in the hope that some of our kind listeners will offer support or resources of one kind or another to Critter Creek Farm Sanctuary. More on this later in today's show. Also, it's a very busy show today, so I want to mention now so I don't run out of time later to just quickly highlight that tonight at New World Brewery, tonight, May 10th, there is a, um, another edition of Pints of Science. That's their quarterly lecture series featuring three esteemed area scientists who share their current projects and passions during individual 20-minute segments followed by a Q&A. So it's, uh, there's no charge for the tickets, but you do have to RSVP at New World Tampa. Dot com to RSVP um, and among the guests will be a recent Talking Animals guest when Bev Capshaw was sitting in for me uh, Ed Sherwood Executive Director of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program so again that's tonight at New World Brewery as part of their great ongoing p- Pints of Science program Right now, though, let's talk chimps with Diana Goodrich with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Diana Goodrich on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Diana.
2: Good morning.
1: Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: For sure. So when did you first know you wanted to work with animals?
2: Um, I don't remember a time when I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> okay. So this goes back to being a kid that was, you know, nuts about animals, I'm guessing. For sure. And so what was the family situation growing up and were there, were a lot of, were there animals in the, in the house and that was part of the initial connection?
2: Yeah, we had, um, we always usually had one dog and one cat, very well-rounded pet situation. I never got into the hamsters or the smaller animals, but um, I really doted on our family cat, and she came to us when I was an infant and lived to be 18 years old and actually died in my arms when I was 18, and it had a pretty big effect on me.
1: Yikes, yeah, that sounds like it would, for sure. And uh, so, from there, uh, did you move on to uh, affection for other animals, or was kind of was that was that a t- little bit of a tough situation having that cat you were so connected with kind of die, uh, especially in your arms like that?
2: Um, yeah, I. Oh, I don't know. I always had an affinity for all kinds of animals, but I had a particular interest, and I really don't know where it stems from. Um, for great apes, non-human great apes, my I ran into an aunt that I hadn't seen in years a few years ago, and she told me about um, how I was obsessed with Coco the gorilla. When
0: oh,
1: I okay. Which
2: I don't even remember.
1: Oh wow. <laughs> Apparently,
2: yeah. <laughs> Apparently, my interest in great apes. Um, was early on
1: so a precocious uh, interest for sure so when you do remember since you don't really remember the cocoa part of the part of your life when you do remember what what is it about great apes that that first drew you
0: i think
2: it's similar to a lot of people who are drawn to them they they're just so familiar you know you just you don't have to know much about them to just be able to look at their faces and recognize yourself in them or them and you, and understand some of what they're experiencing. Um, but they're different enough that it makes it just makes them so intriguing and exotic, and you know, so many questions pop up.
1: Yeah. And then, what prompted you to pursue a path that uh, towards a, a job working full time and, and and probably and then some realistically? With uh, with chimps uh, uh, later on.
2: Well, um, so I when I was in undergrad, I did a I was in an anthropology class and I did a independent study paper about the apes that had been taught the signs of American Sign Language, including Coco, yeah, and the chimpanzee Washo. And I thought that I would major in anthropology. But I took an archaeology class and it just was not for me. So I kind of switched courses as you do when you're, you know, 19 years old in college. And sure. um, ended up majoring in psychology and working with kids in mental health facilities. And um, I moved to Portland, Oregon. And I knew Washoe was in Central Washington at Central Washington University. And I, you know, mapped it out. <laughs> And realized I was only five hours away. Um, And so I just wanted to, you know, understand that program and really meet her. And so I feel like it was kind of a selfish interest in a lot of ways, just this sort of curiosity I had had for a long time. Um, And I was hoping to maybe go off in the field and do field research with Chimps in the Wild. And I ended up applying to the graduate program, and working with the chimpanzees and just learning about their, the state of chimps in captivity and chimps in laboratories, chimps in entertainment, you know, kept in people's homes and pretty much immediately became an advocate for them and wanted to, um, take care of them in sanctuary settings. So I ended up working at a sanctuary in Canada for a few years and then it took a little while before, um, Keith LaChapelle, who's the founder of Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest, he got started in, like, 2003, and it took him some time to get everything built up. But when he had identified a group of chimps that needed rescuing and was looking for people who had experience taking care of them, so that's how I got connected here.
1: Wow, okay. And I'd be curious to know from sort of early on in, in all the ensuing experience, um, how how might your impressions of chimps change? I mean, you talked about how they were kind of you know so kind of human like but just enough different that they were intriguing. Um, what what would you say now kind of particularly fascinates you about them with all the years you spent with them?
2: Um I think it's the same. you know it's it's just being able to recognize how close they are to humans um, and just that they're able to experience all the range of emotions that humans have. Um, You know, I'm more of an activist than ever, I would say, after knowing chimps and individual personalities and recognizing that they just don't belong in captivity at all. Like, I, I don't think there's a captive setting that would allow them to be who they really are. And they... They're very smart and adaptable, so they can survive, certainly, in like really horrendous situations, Um, and they can be happy in sanctuaries, for sure. But even the best of sanctuaries aren't able to provide them with all the things that they would experience in the wild and really allow them to be chimpanzees to the full extent.
1: So I guess at that point, then, the the scenario becomes... If they are captive through whatever means they became captive, then I guess the objective is okay. What's let's give them the best version of being captive, even though uh, it's still captive, and, and we already know that's that's got severe limitations to it at, at its very best.
2: Yep, yep, that's absolutely it. And it's all individual, so um, you know we're on the smaller side of a sanctuary with. Um, no, 15 chimps, and um, everyone needs something different. It's not a one-size football just like us. You know, we have likes and dislikes and things that get us going in the morning and things that keep us happy. So it's really figuring out who they are as a species and making sure that you have kind of that base level of care, but also getting to know them as individuals and providing providing all that they need.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to get into some of their individual needs or stories in a sec, but I just want to first say this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Shousey. If you just tuned in, my guest is Diana Goodrich, co-director of the Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest, located about 80 miles from Seattle. Sanctuary houses 15 chimps, reflecting various types of histories. If you have a question for Diana or a comment, about the sanctuary or sanctuaries generally or just even more generally about chimps, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmf.org or text 813-433-0885. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit more specifically about chimpanzee sanctuary Northwest. First, on a rudimentary, rudimentary level, I can think of a few chimp or primate sanctuaries in Florida, which is where I'm talking to you from, where it tends to be warm and humid, is there any issue for the chimps there, uh, again, not far from Seattle, where I'm guessing it's colder, rainier, and just kind of a little bit harsher climate?
2: Right. So we're on the other side of the mountains from Seattle, so we're on the dry side mm. of Washington State, um, but it also is colder here. So yeah. we get snow. We Last year we got a week of extreme cold weather. Um, so it's, not, it's definitely not chimpanzee habitat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, what they were kind of evolved to experience. Um, But like I was saying, they're very adaptive and all of the chimps grew up mostly indoors. Um, Certainly our first group of seven, they just spent their entire life indoors and didn't have access to an outdoor area at all. Um, And now we have a two acre enclosure for them. So, like I'm just looking out the window right now and it's gorgeous right it's the perfect time of year for them they love the spring and eating grass and they can forage for for um, some of the wild uh, weeds that grow they eat which is kind of interesting oh wow kind of,
1: so yeah. while they're out there kind of playing and just hanging out they they uh, start munching on the weeds
2: yeah yeah they oh. eat the dandelions right now um, and there's a couple other types of weeds that they really
0: is a test of the emergency alert system.
1: So can you tell me uh, what some of these chimp stories, I mean, I alluded to more generally in the opening of the show, but before they arrived um, at your sanctuary, not necessarily each story of each chimp, but because I believe some have some shared histories, as we've also kind of noted. So, you know, just anything that's that kind of uh, cultivates the idea you are n- noting before about just kind of their individual. I mean, the chimps are, are chimps and they're all cool and intriguing, but then there's individual personalities and, and uh, desires and quirks and dislikes and stuff. Can you address some of those, just for a handful of chimps?
2: Sure. Um, so I guess the chimp that comes to mind is Burrito because he's kind of the, the most beloved when you get to know his personality. And he also has... Um, I mean, they all have very complicated and tragic histories in a lot of ways, but he was bred for research and then lived as a, quote, house chimp, Um, so basically was a pet and was around a human child that was also an infant, and so kind of grew up with this kid as as his brother for um, a small period of time, and... When that happens, chimpanzees just, you know, they adapt. So they kind of enculturate into the human culture and probably see themselves as humans. And then after a few years, they're way too strong to be kept in a home. They're dangerous. They're messy. And so um, as pets, they just don't, don't live in that situation very long um, unless somebody has a cage and then they just live in a cage full time. So with Burrito, he was in a human home for a little while and then was put into entertainment for some period of time. And we don't know a lot about that part of his history, but we know he was taught to ride a horse and did Mm. some kind of like circus act type things. Um, And then he was put back into research and was used in hepatitis vaccine testing. And I think socially when he came here with his group of seven total in 2008 – Um, he was like very nervous and socially he just wasn't really fitting in. He's a male chimp and the only male of that group, but he was not alpha, which in the wild that just wouldn't happen. You know, the males are just automatically in charge and he just didn't have that social upbringing and the confidence to be in that position. Um, so it took him several years really here to kind of adjust and Um, fit in but he really did like being around humans and so we have lots of wonderful staff and volunteers that he befriended Um, and then over the years he's just gotten more and more happy (laughs) and he's just the silliest most playful chimpanzee I've ever met in my life and is hilarious and he just wakes up every day wondering you know what antics he can get into and he's now 40 years old um, he's had a couple of experiences of we almost lost him a couple of times for different reasons and he just seems to just really enjoy his life here um, but it took you know when he arrived he was uh, I think 25 so you know it, t- it took a long time for him to get to that point point. Um, and another chimp Jamie who is the boss of her group she also was raised in a human environment but Just had a different personality and was able to figure out how to manipulate humans and kind of get the things that she wanted and is a really strong personality. And so she, I think, was just born to be (laughs) the leader of her group.
1: So, Um, Diana, just for what you said so far, uh, more about Burrito, a little bit about Jamie. Does mm -hmm. their background, like Burrito, kind of hit all the... Things, research, human, mm-hmm. pet, uh, circus, I mean, geez. So as far as you guys know or can tell, does that make it sort of more difficult then? Uh, and that's maybe why, among the reasons maybe it, it took Burrito a while to adapt to the sanctuary thing just because he had so many different elements of his history that compared to one that had maybe, a, for better or worse, just a research background or some other kind of just a single background does that does that figure into how they adapt to sanctuary life
2: um I think it does yeah and you mentioned sanctuaries there in Florida so there's a sanctuary called Center for grade Apes in Wachula and they specialize in um, kind of rehabilitating chimps who have entertainment backgrounds yeah and it is a lot more challenging really to care for chimps who were inculturated into human culture because they just don't have the social skills to be in in groups a lot of the time.
1: Chimp, and, chimp groups, in other words. Yeah, mean. yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it does make it more challenging for sure. And it's also just, you know, individual personalities. Like we're all, some of us are more anxious than others, and, you know, some of us are prone to depression. So it's a combination, just like everything, of environment and
1: genetics. And how much of the like the, those personality traits? How much of that just takes a while to to to, to be apparent to you and the other folks there at the sanctuary caretakers and others? Uh, and how much is, as far as you can tell, maybe it's hard to distinguish one from the other. Um, just certain behaviors are, are are actually changing. They're not just emerging uh, to to be more recognized, but they actually are changing by virtue of being in the sanctuary setting.
2: It's a very gradual process and um, we started a blog even before the chimps arrived and for the last I think 10 years or so it's been a daily blog so the staff contribute to it each day and we we post every single day and I you know a few years ago I was thinking are we going to be able to keep this up like do we have
1: (laughs) the content
2: the stories to do this and there's just so much that goes on in a day and we're just constantly seeing new behaviors with the chimps, new friendships developing, um, the original group of seven, like their friendships have changed and adjusted and, um, we're always, always learning new things about them. It just never ends. It's never like, okay, I have a full picture of who this individual is and they just get more comfortable. Um, Negra is the oldest in our group. We're celebrating her 50th birthday in June, and she was captured in the wild um, before that was illegal. And she just yesterday, day before, wandered way out into the outdoor habitat, which is something she doesn't normally do. And, like, we have no idea what, you know, prompted that. But,
1: Hmm.
0: you
2: know, it's things like that that just every day is different for them and for us.
1: Well, along those lines, um, how do given chimps uh, end up living with other chimps? In other words, I assume, at least first, let me just double-check this assumption. I assume all 15 don't necessarily live together. There's probably subgroups within the overall group of 15. Is that, is that right or not right?
2: That is true at our sanctuary, yeah. There are um, sanctuaries that have groups of 20 or more. Uh- yeah. Yeah, but our, so the original group of seven, we did try to introduce, we were able to take three chimps when Wildlife Waystation Station first closed in 2019. Um, and we did try to integrate them with the original group of seven, and it just didn't work out. There was just a lot of conflict. So we disbanded that effort and then took another group of six from Wildlife Way Station, and we were able to put the six with the original. Three from there, and they had some history with one another, which I think was helpful. Okay. So right now we have a group of
1: nine, and then um, a group of six. And um, so, does it take a certain amount of kind of um, matchmaking when you're kind of creating a, a group that may or may not have some history, but aren't a group like the like the seven that came as a, as kind of a group? I assume that was fairly straightforward. But if you're uh, trying to assemble a group in in a sense um, is it like trial and error? What happens when two or more chimps clearly don 't get along i mean how does how does that work
2: yeah it's um uh, it can be a really difficult process um, and there aren 't a lot of people who kind of have expertise in it, but we brought in somebody who had a lot of expertise who um, had worked first in lab settings and then in a very large sanctuary. Mm. Her name's Jen Firestein, And so she helped oh, yeah, us that... with the process. Um, and there's different methods you can, you know, depending on what your group composition is and what you're trying to do, you can kind of put multiple chimps together at once and see what happens, because ultimately they all have to get along. Yeah. We decided because partly because of our first pretty tragically failed attempt the first time we wanted to take things much slower. So we did just these one-on-one introductions Mm. with a group of six and a group of three. So they just each had a chance to kind of get to know each other. Um, And that's not necessarily going to tell you how they are as a, you know, as a one big group because they have their dynamics with one another too. So then you build up, so you do one-on-ones, you see how that goes, Um, and then you do kind of two-on-two, and you just kind of build from there. So it was, for us, it was, ended up being a pretty slow process, and we took a break during the winter, Um, and they've been together now for a year, and it hasn't been, like, (laughs) all hugging and rainbows and, you know, uh, parties every day, but... um, there's been a lot of heartening moments and a lot of friendships that are developing, but they're still adjusting, really, after a year.
1: So is it kind of a matter of finding uh, or, or, or trying to cultivate chemistry?
2: Mm. I think probably it's more just familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a chimpanzee, Willie B, who was in that group of three that came in 2019, and he definitely has some... I don't know, just social anxiety, I would say. Um, and so we're trying to help him with that. And at the same time, so much of it is just the other members of his new group understanding him and getting used to him and realizing he's not really a threat. He just kind of acts out of anxiety. So I, I would say familiarity and um, patience with chimps so the alpha of that group guy he's just super patient and he's not you know there's different leadership styles and some chimps are you know use more assertiveness or aggression and he's more sitting back and just watching things happen and then will intervene in a pretty non-aggressive way really when he thinks things has gotten a little gone too far
0: wow
1: it's it's really interesting and also as you're talking about just, again, personality traits, just like we would all have some, I'm sure. Amongst those chimps, there's probably some who are, um, you know, just naturally gregarious and some are sort of mm-hmm. more loner types or just like not not super sociable just inherently. And um, people who are maybe are chimps that are kind of grouchy uh, just, you know, mm-hmm. by nature or whatever. So it seems like those are what would all factor into how well, if at all, those groups became kind of integrated.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, chimps were evolved to live in large social groups. So, you know, when you have chimps who have just lived by themselves in pet situations or maybe with one other individual, like that's just not ideal. And like you're talking about, everyone has so many, there's so many different possibilities for personalities, that larger groups really help those individuals find at least one other person that they can connect with, which is, I say, person, chimpanzee person.
1: Yeah, Um, I already did that a couple times so far, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
2: uh, and so that is an advantage, certainly, for larger sanctuaries, because they can kind of try out individuals in different groups, and if it doesn't work, they can, you know, try a
3: different group.
1: Yeah, because I would think that what you wouldn't want to have happen is, uh, let's say there was one that was kind of just not that sociable, kind of grouchy, whatever, what well, you wouldn't want to have, I guess, is is a single chimp that just couldn't uh, roll into another group and so then was just isolated. I mean, it's, I would think that would be sort of not a, a kind of a tough scenario.
2: Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely not ideal. I know that um, there are a couple of chimps that just are so extremely violent that that is the situation for them. In sanctuaries. And it's interesting because a lot of this time they're very connected to humans, but they just can't seem to
1: socialize with other chimps. Yeah. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Diana Goodrich, co director of the Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest, which is located in the state of Washington, not too awfully far from Seattle. Sanctuary houses 15 chimps. We're talking a little bit about how they kind of form groups and get along and, and sometimes don't get along. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So, so yeah, a lot of times it seems like there would just be uh, maybe a misunderstanding that would lead to kind of some squabbling or some kind of grudge maybe, just like, again, like like some of us might have, you know, day to day. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, I imagine, absolutely. yeah, so I imagine another significant element that can alter the chemistry, and this is uh, a timely, you know, sort of delicate matter, is if a member of the group passes away. So, uh, very sadly, a resident of the sanctuary, a beautiful chimp named Jody, passed away, I guess, just a little over a week ago. So, my condolences to you and the others there. I'm sure there's profound sadness and grief throughout the sanctuary, Obviously, including your own. But to the extent you feel up to, can you tell me a little bit about Jody?
2: Yes, I would love to talk about Jodi. So she was um, at least 47. She also, like Negra, was captured in the wild. From what we understand, we don't really have a good history on her early history. Um, she may have been used in the entertainment industry, and then most of her life was spent in biomedical research and she was used in breeding so um, in the laboratory she was in a cage and there would be another cage that would be hooked up to hers, and they would just cycle male chimps in mm. until she got pregnant and she had nine live births and at least two miscarriages wow. in a really short period of time which is completely unnatural for chimps you know they care for their young for four or five years um before having other babies. And her babies of course were taken from her. So she never mm-hmm. really had the opportunity to be a mom. But she had all these motherly instincts and so we celebrate her birthday on Mother's Day. She always was looking out for her other groupmates and kind of keeping helping us keep the routine going. If there was a chimp who was um out on the hill and everyone else was inside, she would just be looking out for them, waiting for them to come back in. And, um, she was much more connected to her chimp family than she was to the humans. Mm. Um, I was trying to remember, I know when she first came, every time we operated doors, we have, uh, doors that are, um, remotely operated and there's a kind of a switch on the door. So you, raise a lever and the door opens but you have to stand there right in front of it and every single time we operated doors she would have a huge mouthful of water and she would spit on
0: us
2: (laughs) and it was just like um amazing and wonderful because it was her way of affecting her outside environment and letting us know that even though you know she was the one that was that was you know basically in the cage she was going to have an effect on us um So she was a very, very strong, stubborn in some ways, and wonderfully caring chimp to her chimp family.
1: Yeah, it sounds, uh, and again, as you kind of noted, very maternal, too, in terms of Mm -hmm. the other chimps and, like, where they were, what was happening with them, making sure everybody was okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and she definitely developed friendships with the humans, too, too. she would greet us in the mornings when we would come in and um, she had a really amazing food groan that she would do um, if she was really happy about something and we nicknamed her Farmer Joe because she was an expert at har- we talked earlier about harvesting the wild plants on the in their outdoor habitat. Yeah. She would just come, come with armloads full of food and bring them back
1: into her indoor space to share right yeah yeah that's great so um you know grief is, is is such a huge complicated powerful feeling and i dare say most of us don't really understand it And most of us typically only grapple with grief when we're in the throes of it so of course you're you're most weak and vulnerable when you're trying to understand something super complicated and intense um there's a video of the sanctuary posted showing Jody's friends saying goodbye to her body. Uh, they are grieving Jody like at a funeral or a memorial service. And I <clears throat> defy anyone li- listening to the show to go watch that video. Hopefully not till we finish talking, um, and not be moved, if not moved to tears. Uh, again, you can, um, if you are interested in, in seeing that, um, the sanctuary website is chimps nw.org or you can search for that on one of their uh, social media pages but um that just seemed like such a powerful kind of profound um moment you indicated in an email to me that jody is the first chimpanzee to die at the sanctuary how did you and others there determine what would happen um in terms of other chimps grieving her passing and, and really the humans there grieving her passing
3: Well,
2: um, you know, we've been, I guess, dreading that day since we met the group of chimps in the lab. And they were all older, even when we met them. So everyone in that group is in their 40s now, which is considered elderly. Mm. Um, So they've actually lived for almost 15 full years at the sanctuary, which is remarkable. Yeah. Much longer than I would have expected. Yeah. But we, so my husband and I are the co-directors of the sanctuary, and we together worked at the Fauna Foundation in Canada, um, and had experienced the loss of chimpanzees there. And the founder Gloria, with the first chimp who passed away, kind of insisted that his body be um, placed back in the enclosure, so that his Friends, his family, Chimp family, could say goodbye, and we, you know, weren't really sure if that was a good idea. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen. Chimps um, can be pretty unpredictable, um, and it was just such a moving and beautiful experience that we were so glad that she insisted that that happened um, because they do need to process the passing of their family member. Just yeah like we do and that video that we took with jody you know we didn't know if we would share it more widely but um I think it is a, it's fascinating to watch
1: it is if
2: you don't know the chimp and if you do it I a lot of our supporters have remarked how comforting it was just to be able to see her other family members say goodbye
1: yeah, no, I think it, absolutely it should be, you know, widely viewed because, again, it's, it's uh, again, grieving is complicated and powerful and, and, well, to some of us at least, not, not really that well understood. And, um, but seeing that, I mean, there was some sort of enlightening element, to, at least to me, and I just thought, wow, this is so powerful. And I assume the chimps that were uh, there grieving her were part of her immediate group But was the other group uh, part of that as well?
2: They were not. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they have some visual access. um, And, I mean, chimps are really intuitive and um, really able to read body language. And so they certainly knew that there were, you know, the human caregivers were sad and that things were happening. And so I've, I've seen... I've felt that a lot of the chimps in the other groups were kind of giving us reassurance and comforting us. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, so that loss is, is, is uh, still quite fresh. How would you say everybody's doing both chimps and uh, humans?
2: Um, I think it's hard to say, particularly with humans. I think the chimps, are able to live day to day a little bit better than humans are. (laughs) Yeah. So they're just, you know, continuing to enjoy the things that they're used to and finding comfort in each other for sure. Um, With the humans, you know, we have some caregivers who probably haven't experienced that much loss in their lives. And it's really, it's hard. And it's, so complicated with being a caregiver because you have these kind of multiple roles that you play with the chimps you know you're kind of part of their family but you're also the medical team and you know they're captors also you know you you can't ever escape that you know you're the one that keeps them locked up so it's just a like I I don't even know what another word is it's just super complicated and, yeah um it's a lot to process
1: and um from from what you've seen of how the chimps have uh been coping with Jody's loss have is there anything that you've kind of been struck by that you thought uh well this 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 kind of helps me or this might help me in the future when I'm uh next grieving uh, some kind of loss
2: Um, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, you know, because I started my career with Chimps in a more scientific setting, um, I always hesitate to read too much into things. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah.
2: But, um...
1: Let's not get into the whole anthropomorphic uh, thing, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. but, you know, at the same time, (laughs) you see things and, um... I don't know. There's just been little things here and there. Like in that video, Foxy, who was a really good friend to Jody, she carries dolls around with her mm. almost all the time. And, um, she left a doll in, in Jody's room. So we're going to, um, bury Jody with that doll. Mm. Um, but it was really interesting, you know, I don't know if she did it on purpose or if she had intent behind it, but, um, Maybe she did. You know, yeah. maybe she was leaving leaving something behind for her. And the the following day, Negra was in the room. Just, I like. I feel like she was again just kind of processing things. You know. Um, and there was a big nest in there. Ne- Jody was an incredible nest builder, so we give the chimps blankets, and they are able to nest with them every day. Mm. And Jody was an expert nest maker and that's not a room that usually other chimps like to hang out in that much. And there was this like giant nest in there the next day. And, um, yeah, I don't, I guess I don't know if I've learned anything more from them specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do go back and watch that video again and you can tell there's different, you know, each individual chimp is processing things differently. Annie was clearly having a little bit harder time with things and mm-hmm. Negra seemed to kind of absorb everything and actually try to reassure the humans who were also right there with them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, again, it's it's super powerful and I don't know uh, if you're able to, if you've watched it multiple times, if you're able to get through it now without uh, feeling as, as upset or if you feel similarly upset each time just because, again, it's just it's It's huge and it's profound and and obviously you know it's sad but but you really are seeing um, grieving right in front of your eyes um, mm-hmm. and it's you know anyway, it seems really meaningful so yeah uh, oh sorry, go ahead if you''t know have... oh, um no, I
2: think. Yeah, I hope a lot of people view it. I, there was a photo years ago of um, a chimpanzee at an African sanctuary who was who had passed away. She was an elder chimp who was beloved by her group, and they had her kind of a funeral procession, and they had her body and was rolling past some a group of chimps, and it was a really incredibly powerful image, and I find the value... I keep thinking about that image. Um, you know, we, everyone just
1: has to kind of say goodbye. It's yeah. Important. So um, we just are in our final couple of minutes here, Diana. So I'm just going to, um, in what may be good news, going to switch gears uh, considerably here, I guess, um, just because I did mention at the outset of the show that, in addition to your work as co-director of the Sanctuary Service Public Affairs Committee Chairperson of the North American Primate Sanctuary Alliance, or NAPSA, so... What What is the future of of chimpanzee ch- sanctuaries? I mean, every so often you'll hear someone who runs any kind of sanctuary saying their goal is to put themselves out of business. I mean, it, it's kind of glib, but it's a worthy goal. But um, depending on what kind of animal it is, it's more or less realistic. But from the standpoint of at least a lay observer, it appears that like the big waves of chimps being released from labs or elsewhere seems kind of behind us, so... Um, I'm wondering if, if sanctuaries, you know, there'll be less and less need for sanctuaries, at least because of that element.
2: Yes. Yeah, it's um, pretty unprecedented, really, in in animal activism where you have a species that, I mean, that is going to happen where there won't be a need for sanctuaries for chimpanzees because there won't be any in laboratories. There are still some now, but they're not being Used in research, and hopefully, the remaining chimps will be able to go to Chimp Haven in Louisiana um, or Project Chimps in Georgia, which is taking in um, privately owned laboratory chimpanzees. Um, so, there is it's like this date in the future <laughs> where hopefully all the chimps will be um, that are in need are in a good place, and then, and then we have to figure out what we do from then. Um, I think that date is further than I kind of originally thought. Oh, yeah. With Wildlife Way Station closing down, um, that was over 40 chimps who needed new homes. So it's hard to say. You know, there might be other situations like that. Um,
1: Something unexpectedly where... There is right. an influx, even though it's not the, from the angle or the reason you would typically have expected in the past, but that right. still means, right. like, okay, we've got now these these chimps need homes somewhere.
2: Yeah. I got you. But with um, NAPSA, we also have member sanctuaries that care for other primate species, and that is just an enormous issue. Um, there are so many monkeys being used, like hundreds of thousands of monkeys and they're still being captured in the wild just to be used in research. There's a lot of articles recently in the U S because they're having the research industry is having trouble importing them. And so now they're making moves to create these really large breeding facilities in the U S so that they don't have to import them. Um, There's, like saying that there's going to be not enough monkeys, but there's just so many monkeys, and there's still lots and lots of monkeys in private homes. Um, there's not a lot of laws against that. Um, you know, it's all state by state. Still monkeys being used in entertainment. So it's just a giant issue that is going to take many, many decades.
1: Yeah. So. so it sounds like the chimp situation, while well, it's receding, the monkey situation's. Uh maybe uh, taking off or, or growing at least yeah. as rapidly as the other one once was all right Diana. well i think we have reached the end of our time we've been speaking with diana goodrich from the chimpanzee sanctuary northwest again the website is chimps org, and or you can just search for uh, chimpanzee sanctuary northwest on their uh, social media pages find out all kinds of information see pictures of all the chimps that i think we've talked about and again you can access that video that we talked about so Dana, thank you so much for uh, joining me on Talking Animals and thank you for talking to me about Jody.
2: Thank you. Thanks for all your questions.
1: All right. Thank you. (music) In a moment, I'll speak with Sheena Drost of Critter Creek Farm Sanctuary in the Gainesville area about a dreadful scam pulled on them and the impact of that scam. When I heard this story, I wanted to help the sanctuary. My hope is that after you hear it, you'll want to help them as well. Right now that we're going to step into the comedy corner with what's become an ongoing series lately about horse racing, the Kentucky Derby, the Triple Crown, and so on. Last week amidst all the horse deaths, it was Nate Fridson I played with a piece called Horse Racing. Today, with more horse deaths likely on the horizon, it's Jim Gaffigan also with a piece called Horse Racing in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMF.
4: We are a country that loves to to bet on horses. Every spring we track the three races of the Triple Crown, every spring I always have the same thought. We're still doing this? Is Woodrow Wilson president? But people love the Triple Crown. The Kentucky Derby where people bet on horses while they're dressed like characters from Gone with the Wind. It's like prom for gamblers. Do you like my hat? I'm living in my sister's garage. Cause I have a debilitating gambling addiction. <laughs> Shall we have another mint julep? <laughs> they always announce the winner of each race on the news. You can always tell the horse was named by a guy on his eighth wife. The horse is always named like, Viagra's Revenge. <laughs> Alimony be dang. <dead." laughs> they show a picture of the winning horse on the news. They could show us a picture of any horse. We wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> I don't know what we're supposed to do with that horse image. It's, now that like we're going to run into that horse in a bar. <laughs> Excuse me, did you win the Kentucky Derby? I did, I won the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> now I'm in a bar enjoying a Heffenweizen. <laughs> there is the classic photo of the winning horse, right? They're, they're always wearing that huge horseshoe wreath of flowers they stole from someone's gravesite. <laughs> Standing next to the winning horse is the owner of the horse who did not train the horse, did not ride the horse, and based on body language, has never really met the horse. <laughs> there the owner stands, looking like they've never paid taxes. <laughs> Sitting on top of the winning horse is the jockey who's dressed like he just came from a local pride parade. <laughs> there was interview the jockey expecting some insight. They're like, how'd you win? The jockey's like, I whipped the horse and it ran.
1: That was Jim McGaffigan in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Horse Racing taken from his album Quality Time. Now it's time to speak with Sheena Drost of uh, Critter Creek Farm Sanctuary. She's got a doozy of an ugly story about the sanctuary being deceived over an extended period of time, but uh, hopefully some of us can uh, step in and help out a little bit. This is Sheena Drost on Talking Animals on WNR. Good morning, Sheena. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals.
3: Yes, thank you for having me.
1: So... Uh, Let's just start with just at least a brief overview of of Critter Creek Farm Sanctuary. What is it and what is its mission?
3: Um, Sure. So Critter Creek Farm Sanctuary is a farm animal sanctuary. Um, We rescue farmed animals from various situations, cruelty, neglect, slaughter. Um, And our mission is to continue to rescue these animals and educate uh, the public as well uh, about the plight that farmed animals
1: face. And how long has Critter Creek been around?
3: Um, they started in 2016 with our first rescues, but we opened officially to the public in 2019.
1: Right. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, I'm taking a deep breath and, uh, then if you would, uh, start telling me and telling us the, uh, the awful story.
3: Um, yeah, I'll try to keep a long story short. Yeah. Um, so we met a couple of independent contractors about three years ago. Um, they were at the time our equine barriers. Um, they were great barriers. They, you know, told us after, you know, getting to know them a little while that they were certified level two journeymen. And then they offered to work on building projects for us. Um, they did a great job in the start. We grew to trust them, developed a relationship with them. You know, they said all the right things and seemed genuinely hardworking. Uh, they began work on our Airbnb in 2022 and, um, we, we were starting an Airbnb to generate some donations and income for the sanctuary.
0: Sure.
3: The construction was slow um, because they lived over an hour away. <clears throat> so we offered to let them live in the Critter Woods house, which are the um, founder's former residence, rent-free while they worked on the cabin. They moved in in November, 2022. Our founder, Aaron, visited the property about a month later and it looked great. looked fine. Um, at first things were going great, but progress, Started to significantly slow. And there were always excuses. They needed a certain piece of equipment, or another contractor messed up, or it was their fault. And anytime we would check on the Airbnb cabin, it was a whirlwind of, we're going to do this to fix that, or the, construct- the con- uh, contractor messed this up, so we have to fix this. Or it was kind of like, look at this shiny thing. Um, basically, a game of smoke and mirrors. But yeah. again, we trusted them as they had given us no reason not to at this point. Uh, so, and also we just, as a farm sanctuary, you know, it's, it's all hands on deck all the time. So we didn't really have time to micromanage them. Um, by April, we all decided to pitch in to get the Airbnb finished. And the whole team looked at the cabin without the independent contractors present. And I believe they just, you know, we all believe that they immediately realized the jig was up.
0: Mm. There
3: was no discretion. No discussions, no confrontations. Literally five days after that, they cut and run. Oh, wow. So it was after that, picking up the pieces, looking back, seeing red flags that were missed before, um, that we learned they basically had been lying and sabotaging the cabin at every step. Yeah. All to drag it out as long as they possibly could to, of course, make as much money as they could.
1: Right. Keep getting paid.
0: Um, Yeah.
3: Yeah. So it was merely just a long con. Wow. in hindsight, you know, we could have done things and should have done things differently, but, you know, we, we desperately needed the help and thought we knew them well.
1: Right, and you trusted um, them, and, and one, yeah. of the, one of the many things that kills me about the story is offering them a place to stay so they wouldn't have the long commute back and forth. But yes. just so we don't run out of time, uh, Sheena... Uh, this, this is awful. And, you know, uh, the impact obviously is significant. So if someone's listening that wants to help, whether it's offering donations or resources, maybe there's a contractor that could help, you know, kind of clean up some of the, uh, building mess or whatever, what's the best way to contact the sanctuary to make a donation?
3: Um, The best way to contact the sanctuary is our email, which is simply info at CritterCreekFarmSanctuary.org. Okay. And also, if you go to our website, CritterCreekFarmSanctuary.org, there's a Want to Help tab, and there's a tab for donations and also a tab for volunteers.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's all we have time for, but thank you so much, and good luck. We hope we'll help you. Talking Animals on WMF Tampa. Thanks.